are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in here today on the Steve Day Show podcast, powered by CRTV, here exclusively on Westwood One. My name is Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with us as well. And if you're not yet a subscriber to CRTV and you want to watch our television show today, CRTV.com is how you can go to the website and watch not just us, but every single show at CRTV, uh, from Mark Levin to Michelle Malkin, Steven Crowder, all the way down to other programming, our little corner of the CRTV universe. And it's just a quarter a day. If you use my name as a promo code there at CRTV.com, promo code DACE. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. And if you hear anything on our podcast today that you want to respond to, or maybe from past days, let us know what you think about what we think. In fact, tomorrow, we always do a Feedback Friday where we respond to some of the responses you guys send to us. And you can send us your feedback one of three ways. You can email us. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Well, today's podcast, gentlemen, it is a Theology Thursday, and I want us to discuss one of America's great sources of theological inquiry that has put forth two things recently that made quite an impression on me that I, I, I think weren't warrant a, a, a further conversation. And of course, I'm, I'm discussing Amazon Prime, where all good theology is found. Well, it's kind of, you have as good of odds of finding it there than most of our theological seminaries these oh, days, don't we? Oh, that's a hot take. Hot take! <laughs> Doesn't mean it's wrong. Doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> all right? But, um, I mean, Rob Bell came from somewhere. <laughs> nice. <laughs> let's start. Let's start with the one that's likely to make us less crazy. Okay. So last night, I'm I'm watching. Uh, I'm, uh, they've got this old Dr. Francis Schaefer series from the '70s on Amazon Prime, the original episodes. And for those who don't know who Francis Schaefer was, uh, he was sort of the leading. The evangelical church's leading theological cultural critic of of the 1970s and somewhat into the 1980s, sort of a precursor to a Chuck Colson. In fact, um, early in early in my in my conversion, I read Chuck Colson's Chuck Colson's "How Now Shall We Then Live." And it, and he co-wrote it with Nancy Piercy and had a huge impression and influence on me. And it really introduced me to the idea of, a, of, of worldview for the first time. I didn't know until later on that the book was a takeoff of Dr. Francis Schaeffer's How Then Shall We Live? Which is a takeoff, as you would note as a Catholic, Todd, to St. Peter's question in one of his epistles, How Then Shall We Live? How then are the people of God to live? It's one of the, that's the question that Peter poses 
in one of his epistles towards the end of the New Testament. In light of what God has done for us, in light of Christ's return, and in light of God's expectations for us until that occurs, how then shall we live? And this is and I went to the very last episode because a lot of the things that I thought were brought up in previous episodes seemed more specific to that current time period when I looked at the descriptions, or were things that were already pretty well versed in, hap, in, in, in discussing because they've already occurred. It's what he was dealing with in 1977 when the series first came out. Plus, the description of the last episode instantly got my attention. Because it, it's, it's his forecast of what's coming in the future. Which means he's now predicting 41 years ago what we will be talking about now. And as I watched this, it was like, mind if you could, if my mind were a thought, but if my thought bubble were a tweet or a Facebook status, it would be mind blown. Because for the twenty nine minutes of this episode, in cheesy seventies um, sketches and eight millimeter film and dress, it was like watching an episode of Lost. Remember, you remember Lost, right, Todd? Of course. Okay, when they go to the island. We're actually saying, how long ago was it now that we're saying, do you still remember Lost? I know, it's, been a de- it's been like a decade, yeah. man. Can you believe that? When they, you know, when they would go to the island and they would find the old clips of the uh, Dharma Initiative? Right, right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is what it was like watching. And the guy from the, the Asian guy that's the scientist from the Dharma Initiative is like telling them everything that they're going through right now on the island as they're watching the clips and it's like eerie to watch. This is what it was like watching Dr. Schaefer last night in this, in this video. And I've always been fascinated by him because I think I told you guys the story before about one of the, when I first started being public about my faith as someone who was a public figure in our community and a pastor of a big church in Iowa asked me to come and speak at their men's ministry event, and I did. And when I got done, he had mentioned to me that you know it was powerful and it was like watching one of the Old Testament prophets in action. And then he looked at me and said, but just remember what guys like me did to all the prophets. I think I told you guys that story, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's another part of that story I've never mentioned before is he, is he also said, this was, this was almost like watching a young Francis Schaefer. I didn't have a clue who that was. I had no clue who that was. It's only been in recent years that I realized this guy was a real big deal back in the day, you know? And I'm watching this last night, and it's like I'm watching a video of the, the Dharma Initiative left in a time capsule in a cave on the island for me to find in 2018. I'm like, where's the black smoke? Where's the smoke monster? Others, others. <laughs> Where are the others? Yes. Where's the portal? Where's the portal? Because the dude literally just summarized my show every day 41 years ago in 29 minutes. And it came down, this was what he said the next generation would face. He talked about, he called it in his time, now that the culture has rejected the Christian consensus. That's what he called it at his time. 
you know, we might call them moral absolutes, the Judeo-Christian morality. That's maybe the nomenclature we would use in our day. He called it the Christian consensus in 1977. He said, now that the culture, and, and keep in mind, he's now coming out of, he's in the first throes of post-sexual revolution. So he's only a couple of years away from Johnny Carson waiting in line in Manhattan to see Deep Throat in a movie theater. You know, some of the, he's in the early post-sexual revolution uh, reverberations. We are so far down the yellow brick road from where Francis Schaefer, Francis Schaefer was like sitting there with the munchkins telling Dorothy, uh, follow the yellow brick road. We are like at the end of the road. We're like going in, we're like, we're at the, we're at the Elton John's now goodbye yellow brick road, okay? From where he is at. We're like, we're showing kids deep throat in sixth grade now, guys, okay? Actually, Deep Throat is too heteronormative now. That's, so that's, that's yeah. true. We've rejected that. Yes. 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 It's two guys saying, this is a banana. Yeah, that's what <laughs> we're doing now. Yeah. And Pando Calrissian is finding his robots clitoris. That is literally what we are doing now. Yes. yes. Um, but he said, now that the culture has rejected the Christian consensus, he said, what would come? And I... I almost don't want to repeat this again, man, because it was so, it was uncomfortable to watch. I felt like somebody was doing to me what many people have often accused me of doing to them. <laughs> I was like, I gotta turn this off. It must suck to be around me. Gosh, this is really, I'm really unsettled right now. I'm very vexed. I'm very vexed, okay? Because he, he, you know what he's saying is true, but you don't want it to be, and you don't want to admit it, you know? And I know I do this to people too often. Well, someone finally just did it to me, all right? He said, now that the Christian consensus has been rejected and transcendence has been lost, what will arise in the next generation will be cultural governance by the elites, And elites will sprout up, particularly in pop culture and in academia, and then eventually in government. But it will start in those places first, and then it will go to government. And the ones in government will be heavily influenced by by their progenitors in pop culture and academia. Stop me if this sounds familiar to anybody. And they will recognize that Upon rejecting the Christian consensus, we still have to have some form of moral order. They just won't want the Christian one. And so these elites will create what Schaefer called arbitrary moral absolutes. They will just concoct them from their imaginations. I love that use of language is so perfectly brilliant and nonsensical at the same time. I love what he did. What do we often talk about? Tolerance for me, but not yeah, for exactly. He, he got it. He, he got nailed it. it. He 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 sat there. Arbitrary. Absolutes. He sat there and told us what the weather. We can't trust the environmentalists to tell us what the weather's going to be next 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 week compared to ten thousand years from now. Francis Schaefer in this video on Amazon Prime just told you what what the future was. That has in 29 minutes and 41 in four, in 41 years ago. That's shades of Thanos. Oh, it's an absolute that half are going to die, but it's arbitrary which ones. Yes. And he said they would con- they would often conflict. And they would and they they would they wouldn't follow a consistent strain. That's why he called them arbitrary. 
and they would literally just make these up as they go along, a morality that they thought they, that would suit the moment in time, what they needed it to be. I'm watching this, and I'm like, I don't want to watch this anymore. I don't want to watch this anymore. And yet I couldn't turn it off. Because where he went next, dude, it was like watching the end of a Detroit Lions game that matters. It was a total Jimmy kick, bro, with a steel-toed boot. And you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming, but you couldn't You couldn't look away. You know what I'm saying? No, you don't know what I'm saying. You're not a Detroit Lions fan. No idea what I'm saying. You couldn't look away. We have Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> yes. You couldn't. Aaron will get this. Aaron, it's like Iowa playing Wisconsin in football when it matters. You know it's coming, Aaron. You what, know, you what's know, coming. You, they will find some way oh. to to beat you in a game that matters. That's well, just what should. Wisconsin does. They should. Iowa fans have immense Wisconsin envy, as Todd knows, and he exploits often I actually, on social media. I actually don't anymore. I'll explain that later. What he said would happen next that would condition the culture to accept these arbitrary moral absolutes from elites, from contesting dueling elites, D-U-E-L, okay? So different factions Mm -hmm. of elites. What would condition the culture to go along with this and to line up in dueling factions of elites with with their arbitrary moral absolutes would be tribalistic media narratives that would essentially eviscerate truth in place of confirming people's biases. And he showed... Was he a time traveler? He And, and the example he gave is he gave the way, two different ways media in his time covered a campus unrest situation with young people, young adults. And one media outlet showed the exact same, they both showed the exact same footage, okay? They, the footage is the same. One media outlet's narr- narration was totally from the point of view of the protesters. These were young people, weren't causing any problems. And you can see the narrator is saying this while you're watching the young people are shaking their fists at the cops, yelling at him, screaming at him. These were peaceful protesters and um, they were just here to get their message out about justice and equality. I mean, I'm just, I'm watching this. And then he goes to the next clip. Same exact stuff. Because what you, what you do see in the clip is you see the protesters antagonize the cops and the, and the cops go way overboard in response to being antagonized. Hey, you shook your fist at me, called me a name, just start grabbing people, dragging them off. You know what I'm saying? So the same video clip then goes to the next narrative. Our heroic men in men in blue here to protect and serve quickly put down this riotous group of trouble anti-American trouble. I mean, I just watched this, dude, and I'm like, oh my gosh, holy Moses, man! He just described. He just predicted cable news, guys. Where Trump where Trump could give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation to an Antifa protester who suffers heat stroke for protesting him in front of the White House. And MSNBC and CNN will run with the headline and the cry on, 
uh, civil rights protester recovers slower than normal because Trump was trying to help him. That's what they would do. On the other hand, he could grab a Glock and shoot a member of the White House staff for burning his grilled cheese in cold blood, and Sean Hannity will be on Fox tonight saying, well, he kind of had it coming, guys. I mean, you burn the grilled cheese twice in a row. What would you expect the president to do? He should get, I mean, it's a stressful job. He should get a well-cooked, how hard is it to get well-cooked? The best well-cooked grilled, grilled, grilled cheese. The best. No doubt. The very best. You've never had grilled cheese like this before. Is this not the world in which we live? Yeah, this- and so because of the, 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 the contrasting media narratives that would seek to provide confirmation instead of information. The people, once the Christian consensus is rejected, would now be conditioned to just line up with whatever group of elites, moral, uh, arbitrary moral absolutes, are their elites. Are they so, and then they would just say, and so say we all. And we live in a day and age where the Democrats laughed at Mitt Romney when he said Putin was an enemy of the U.S., and now they believe a country that can't even assassinate, a dictator who can't even assassinate his own reporters when he brags about it. Remember, see, we saw that story today. See that? The reporter that he apparently assassinated four months ago showed up at a press conference today. Okay. Um, he's now enemy number one and infiltrated our elections. This is the only reason that Hillary Clinton lost. And the same Republicans who... Um, thought Putin was terrible and a dictator. When Trump started saying nice things about him, the polling on that did a total reverse. When Obama went golfing every day that ended in Y, Democrats said it's a stressful job and he needs a break. And the Republicans said, uh, you know, he's just lazy and hates America. And now when Trump does it, same exact talking points, just all in reverse. It's exactly what was in this Francis Schaefer special last night. And it wrecked me. I mean, it absolutely wrecked me when I watched this. Your thoughts, gentlemen? Well, he, Francis Schaefer is clearly just an alter ego. What's the Flash's name? Barry what? Uh, Barry Allen. Barry Allen, because he's clearly Barry it's, Allen. He, yeah, it, it, Francis from... Schaefer is actually the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers. It's a burner account. <laughs> and he's just throwing these things out there. And not, I'm sorry, go ahead. This is like that scene in Batman versus Superman where the Flash comes back to warn everybody about what's going on to wake up Bruce Wayne. This is... Yeah, this is too too spot on to even be. If if it's prophetic directly from the hand of God, you can't you can't you can't possibly know the teachings of the scriptures better in this particular light than to get in order to get it this right. I mean, there's not. This is the perfect ten. This is the perfect ten. You know, gymnastics, stick the landing, just everything. There, there are. No flaws in this analysis. It it is showing people. It, it's not even through the glass darkly. It it's it is just absolutely clear as day. You are given a script for your future, um, which is the gift of faith. Actually, uh, so God bless the man for having uh, the courage to. Uh, be willing to put himself forward and give people ears to hear and eyes to see if they choose. But I, I mean, that's what I'm looking around in this day and age. Who's, who's the guy who just is just standing and delivering? And he, hey, if you, if you don't know who Francis Schaefer is now, find out who he is and pattern your life after him. Because um, if only we had far more men like him then, and God knows we need him now. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, I think this is. 
Now, I'm going to butcher this, but I think this is a perfect example of seeing through the eyes, not with the eyes. I think I got that right. Seeing through the eyes, not with the eyes. Um, that's really what it means to have a worldview. Meaning that you see, you, you don't just see the world um, as just in, in, in actions and words from people taking place in a vacuum. There's a reason behind everything. The fact that Francis Schaeffer was able to say the same things that we say every day 40-some-odd years ago means that he was operating under the same worldview that we are today, which means that what, what, what can we derive from that? It means that a Judeo-Christian worldview can exist throughout time. It means that that is important for all of us to have a fully formed worldview. Therefore, we're not just uh, like the, the, you know, the rest of uh, in, inevitably like the rest of uh, civilization. We're, we're just making up arbitrary morality that suits the moment. This was less a, a mind-blowing prophecy from francis schaefer more than um less a mind-blowing prophecy as much as it was uh an affirmation that a judeo-christian worldview functioned then and it will function now and it can function in the future again seeing through the eyes not with the eyes okay since we're in the forecasting arena we're in the future casting arena let's take the next step this was the other theologically inclined show i watched on amazon prime this week it's an eschatology documentary called the coming convergence Uh oh (laughs) don't look at me todd's looking at me todd's got this look we're doing this I really thought, I know you told me we were going to talk about it, but I really hope how long we went about Francis Schaefer. And I even tried, <laughs> I even tried going on and on myself in the hopes we would just realize we're out of time and we couldn't get there. I'm blinking SOS with my eyelashes right He's now. literally holding on to his butt. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. Yes. Now, here's the thing. I actually love this topic. I've always loved it. I find it fascinating. I've studied it. I've read tons about it. I don't like debating it. Because most people won't let you. It's either affirm every tentacle of my pet theory or burn. So, I like, I think it's, Jesus commanded us to study the signs of the times. To be, to be ready. To be watchmen on the wall. To occupy until he returns. So if I've, if I've ever sent the message that I don't think this is an important issue or anything of that nature, this is only the most, in, we're only talking about the most important event in the history of existence. Other than that, though, maybe it's overrated. Of course I think it's important. I've always thought it was important. I'm not able to hold an intelligent conversation on all of the major views about this topic because I've never seriously studied it, guys. You know? The issue is I've just seen it drive people insane. Make them crazy. And that's why we've often stayed away from it from a programming standpoint. But 
I chose to watch this because it presented a viewpoint that a lot, or it presented a variation on a viewpoint that a lot of American Christians have about the end times that I don't necessarily subscribe totally to. Now, I know as a Catholic, I know what your view, you're going to have the Augustinian on millennial view for the most part, right? Am yeah. I right about that? I don't even know what view you have, Aaron. Have I ever even asked you what your view is? Uh, I am a nocturnal thiefist. <laughs> what does that mean? Come like a thief in the night. All right, that's, okay, so that's sort of my yeah. position, not... So Aaron's Catholic. That's what we just figured out. Uh, that, that's yeah, and you're Protestant, Todd. Ever, we're syncretists now. That's what we were excused of the other day. <laughs> but one of the things I like to do is I like to read what people who don't agree with me. Not, I'm not going to like study heretics, but people within orthodoxy who don't agree with me when I think they're presenting something from an angle that I'd not previously considered, Okay. And so there's this documentary on Amazon Prime called The Coming Convergence. And it is presented from a premillennial dispensational view. For those of you that don't know what that terminology means, it's essentially a, a, the, the left behind eschatology, right? That there's either there's a rapture either right before the Great Tribulation, meaning the end of days, uh, in the middle of it or at the end of it, and where Jesus returns uh, and removes the church. Um, and either the beginning or the middle or the end of the tribulation gets progressively worse once the church is removed because that is the sign that God's restraining hand against evil is gone. The Antichrist reigns until Jesus then returns, like we see in Revelation, uh, on a white horse with a uh, robe dipped in blood and the armies of the heavenly hosts casts him and his false prophet, his chief lieutenant, his bishop, if you will, into the, into the lake of fire. And there's the, the, the great white throne judgment where people are separated from sheep to goats, depending on whether you have accepted Christ's salvation for your sins or not. Do I have this right? Correct me if I'm wrong at any point. Okay. Yeah, basically. And of course, there's going to be very more technical things about this. Yep. And if you're the person emailing me right now, I I, I know just more. Stop. Just stop. If you know, you, you probably do more about this. Call Westwood One, send them a demo, and say, I know more than Dace, I should be doing this show. We're, it's a capitalistic country. They may think you're better at this and replace you with me. So send that email to them. I don't care. You know? Um, that's the view or variations of it the vast majority of American evangelicals have. And the reason why the vast majority of evangelicals have this view, as I've explained before, is because at the turn of the 20th century, and especially post-Scopes Monkey Trial, a lot of American Protestantism, the whole argument we're having now about social justice versus the gospel has been had before, was had a century ago. It was had in the early years of the 20th century, and it really amped up after the Scopes Monkey Trial, which was an embarrassing moment for the, the Protestant church in America. Inherit the wind. Yep. And so a lot of what we now call mainline Protestant churches, your United Methodists, um, you know, several variations of your Presbyterians, etc., they went more liberal and focused more on social activism than the gospel. And as the decades went by, the gospel became less and less and less of a consideration in place of more and more and more social justice action. What do I mean by that? Let me, I'll give you an example from my own life. 
two years ago, one of the largest Methodist churches here in town, a guy that listened to me when I was still doing sports talk radio, asked me to come and speak to their elders and deacons. Um, they have a monthly breakfast, and it was the breakfast before Christmas, and he asked if I would be their local celebrity guest speaker. I said, sure. So I go in there, and he stops me as I'm coming in, and he says, hey, I need to warn you. I don't, I'm not sure how anybody at this meeting has really done any serious Bible study in their life. These are like their elders and deacons, guys, okay? So I'm like, uh, these stereotypes are real? I didn't think this stuff was like for real, and he's just telling me it was. We get in there, and one of their elders gives the prayer before we have breakfast, and we're eating on recyclable plates with recyclable, di- recyclable dishes. Uh, the prayer is to ask, is to... Is to um, and I mean, it's a very, it's a very Spartan breakfast. We're not, it's, there's no kind of spread here. Okay. It's the whole thing just screams white liberal guilt. His prayer is about, you know, how thankful they are for this food. And there's so many other hungry people and stuff in the world. And there's, there'd be nothing wrong with that if it was placed in its proper context, but it's clear it was placed in, placed in the context that these people thought they were more Peace Corps. Uh, than they were, uh, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. They, they, don't, they don't think they're an That's army. Putting it. You know what I'm, they think they're the Peace Corps. And, and Jesus is never brought up. The name of Jesus is not mentioned at any point in time. So what do you think I did, man? Everybody else spoke. Jesus never comes up when it was my turn. I dropped every Jesus reference I knew at that time in my spiritual knowledge. And so this is an example of what I mean with replacing the gospel with social action. Well, a lot of the Protestant churches went down this road. And most and, and, and most of the ones that didn't belong to one of two branches. Not always, but most. One were Pentecostal charismatic churches that came out of what was known as the Azusa Street Revival in the very early days of the 20th century. The others were Baptist churches associated with the Moody Bible Institute or the Southern Baptist Convention. And a lot of them were heavily influenced by what was known as the Schofield Study Bible. And the notes in the Schofield Study Bible, when it came to like Revelation and Daniel and those, and those uh, teachings or those scriptures, all were done from a premillennial dispensational teaching. And dispensational means God has divided history into dispensations. And so seven of them, Aaron, I'm asking, I got to guess the homeschool kid knows more about this than me. Yes. There's seven of them, right? Okay. There's seven dispensations. And that's what we mean. All right. And so this, this would be the last of God's dispensations before the end of days. Okay. Now, I, I think I'm right about this. Uh, conservative reformed theology people actually have a view similar to Catholics that God has divided history by covenants, right? The Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the the, new, the, the the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant through Christ. Do I have that right? Am I right about that? Yeah, and there's some overlap between what you're talking about with covenants and, and yeah, dispensations. Yes, yeah, it, yeah. But the covenants don't necessarily covenantal theology does not necessarily mean that there is a def, uh, there is a defined endpoint of history that we can see the signs that it's happening now. Dispensationalist is literally like a clock. Okay, a covenant is is God defining His nature via 
the, how he conducts his affairs directly with humanity. Dispensationalists are literally looking at the world that um, it's a clock like a game. All right, and they would look at this dispensation as the two-minute warning of the game. Is that fair? I'm trying to be as fair on these viewpoints as I possibly can. Because I also know there's a lot of people in our audience that might be Mormon, might be agnostic, might be Jewish, and don't necessarily take for granted or know a lot of the terminology we're talking about. So I'm trying to be as fair and as general about these things without getting in the weeds as possible, because I think you need to have a baseline knowledge of what we're about to discuss next before we can go there. Okay? I, think he, I think it's fair. Okay. Yep. Mm, good. So the, what I found fascinating, one of my critiques of premillennial dispensational eschatology is that it's, it's very Eurocentric and Amerocentric in its application. And a lot of times what I've seen from this viewpoint is very, they handle their business often like Darwinists do. When I was a little kid, we were told the earth and humanity were millions of years old. Now you're told it's hundreds of millions of years old. And, you know, carbon dating can't go any more than, what is it, 14 or 15,000 years of accuracy or something like that. So they'll just keep moving the ball. It'll be hundreds upon hundreds, thousands of millions. They'll just keep moving the ball to maintain their narrative. Cambrian explosion happens. We discover that in the fossil record. That doesn't fit the idea of a slow, gradual nature just kind of trying species by chance what works and what doesn't the k-brain explosion fossil record doesn't supply that so i guess we'll just have to make it that well it took even more years than we thought whatever we have to say to hold on to the narrative the darwinist will do aliens seeded the planet yes i see strains of that in premillennial dispensationalism how Lindsay writes one of the best-selling books of the 1970s the late great planet earth jesus is coming back in 1988 why 1988? May 14th, 1948 is when the UN Charter created Israel. A biblical, a literal biblical generation is 40 years. So what's 40 plus 48, guys? 1988. 1988 came and went. Jesus didn't come back. Well, then he changed it to, well, actually, the Jews didn't take back Jerusalem until the Six-Day War of 1967. So 40 years from 1967 now. So he bought himself another 20 years of book sales. 2007 comes and goes what happens guys jesus doesn't return yeah, we reached the point where i hate this game by the way now now it's well they don't have full conclusion of jerusalem now we're being told that trump's moved the embassy there now they officially have jerusalem well they actually officially recognized jerusalem as their capital i believe it was in 1995 or 85 in other words we're just going to move dates to fit the narrative that doesn't mean there's not good arguments for premillennial dispensationalism. The one, one, the one I struggle to argue against is the is the is the Antichrist. Paul is very clear to the Thessalonians that an Antichrist. He is referencing a future event of an Antichrist. That's not even a debatable point that I can see. And so I think that's a hard one to argue a preterist, meaning you think most of what John wrote in Revelation has already taken place. It's very hard to be a full preterist when you read Thessalonians, because Paul's very adamant. No, you didn't miss, they thought they missed Jesus' return. No, you didn't miss it. You're going to know when Jesus comes back. And there's, a, and there's a precursor event to his coming back. There's going to be a man of lawlessness will be revealed. So, but in my lifetime, I've been told 
before I was a believer, I was told uh, Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and not one but two wars in Iraq. Uh, uh, there's been so many spin. The European Union was the rise of the next Roman Empire. See, that's the problem with claiming Daniel's statue. The la- the feet are the Roman Empire. The last thing are the Roman Empire. Well, who? The Roman Empire. The Greeks were never conquered. They were basically absorbed by the Romans. They took their language, their gods, everything, and just changed them around. The Roman Empire was conquered. Who conquered them? The Muslims did. Constantinople. They ended the Roman Empire. Have we still had a heavy imperial Muslim influence in the world ever since the 15th century? Ah, yeah, guys. They're debating with each other right now whether to reinstall the caliphate now. So there's a lot of holes I can poke in this theory. Because a lot of it has come from an Amero or Eurocentric point of view. But you have to understand, from the Bible's point of view, America and Europe are not the center of the world. America is a non-entity. Europe is an afterthought, except for maybe in a couple of references that you can make a case, like Ezekiel. Jerusalem is the center of the world. This documentary actually applies a a premillennial dispensational viewpoint from the notion that Jerusalem is the center of the world. So right away I'm like, okay. So we're not going to do the typical John Hagee clickbait that I've read most of my life. These people are serious about this. I'm in. I read, By the way, I read every Left Behind book. I even read the books Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins wrote the nonfiction books they wrote in between Left Behind books to defend their theory. I read every one, enjoyed almost all of them, went out and bought them at the bookstore the day they came out. I'm very well versed in this view. I know much more than I'm letting on. I'm just trying to describe it as generally as I can to avoid getting in the weeds, okay? Two things they said that caused me for the first time in many years to reconsider the premillennial dispensational viewpoint. On this documentary, they explain that a lot of misinterpretations or misapplications to this premillennial dispensational, and they didn't call it that, but that's, that's the position they were arguing, have stemmed from the fact, that's my criticism, People are applying this from a Western lens. They're interpreting a Western lens upon Jewish writings. And they said many of the things have been misapplied because we don't understand Hebrew references, Hebrew idioms, sayings, etc. And so we're taking these things out of context. And a, and, and a couple of the, the examples that they gave, or one major example they gave, I'll get to in a moment. But one thing they pointed out was the, the war of Gog and Magog. And many people believe Magog is a, re, is it Gog or Magog is a reference to Russia and its ancient name. They pointed out that even until a couple of years ago, the idea that Russia would align with Iran and with Syria to attack Israel didn't seem like a legitimate view. And we would all agree. We weren't, we weren't talking about these things 10 or 15 years ago, were we? No. Does it, if, take all of the prophecy aspect of it out, if we woke up tomorrow and found out that there was a, Rus, a, a Russo-Iranian-Syrian 
alliance to attack Israeli interest. Would any of us be shocked by that news? No. 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 So I think that's a point that deserves to be made here. Meaning that if, if indeed a sovereign God wants things to happen a certain way that don't seem foreseeable or, or conceivable to us in a given time, he gets to make those sorts of things happen. So if you buy into this viewpoint, one of the stranger things that you had to defend 10 or 15 years ago was why would anybody think Russia would... Russia's trying to get into NATO. Why would they attack Israel? Well, doesn't seem too strange now, does it? So right. I think we shouldn't mention that, to be fair. But this was the part that really made me... I even rewound it to watch it again. They made the point that much of Jesus's ministry... His coming to earth, his death, resurrection, and ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit, lines up perfectly with Jewish festivals in the spring. That's true. That is true. For example, Jesus is crucified when? On Passover, right? In fact, if you go through the biblical, if you go through the the synoptic gospels, if you line it up, Essentially, at the time he's breathing his last, would be at the exact outside the city gates there or out or there on Golgotha, would have been on the Day of Atonement when they would have brought out the sacrificial lamb, would have been at that exact watch when that when that, when that happened. What do we call the day the Holy Spirit comes? That's called what Pentecost, which is a Jewish festival. They are making the case that God does these things in patterns and gives us prophecy. Because he wants us, he wants to build our faith. He wants to give us confidence. Their case was Jesus' first coming, many of those lines up almost perfectly with the Jewish festivals of the spring. Therefore, and there's seven major Jewish festivals, I think there's four in the spring and three in the fall. Therefore, his second coming will line up perfectly with the Jewish festivals of the fall. And, and what blew me away was they used a scripture we have often cited in a way I've never seen before. We've all, you know, you mentioned like a thief in the knife, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. They point out that's a Hebrew idiom that Jesus has asked, when will these things take place? No one knows the day or the hour was his answer. We, he goes in a Western lens, they said in a Western lens, we think that means a time that an unpronounced time that only God knows for sure. They think that's the exact opposite. That actually the festival of trumpets in the fall, which was often associated with the festival of the new moon or the recognition of a new moon. And what would happen is um, no one knew the exact day or hour that the new moon would show in the sky, but they had a general idea of what time of year that would take place. And then what would happen is one person would say, hey, I think I see the sliver in the sky of the new moon. He would then have to go and get a second witness to agree, yes, that is what we're saying, to then go back and report to the authorities, the new moon is here. In other words, it would require two witnesses. Who are some of the key players in the book of Revelation? The two witnesses. Two witnesses. And that... They that, that that there's actual archaeological and historical record prior to the time of Christ of Jews referring to the festival of trumpets centered around the, the timing of a new moon as 
no one knows the day and the the day or the hour. That in other words, Jesus wasn't saying to his to his disciples, "This is an indeterminate time." But that is actually a very determined time, just not a specifically determined time. See where I'm going with this? Yeah. So, if when is the festival of trumpets? Well, it's often associated with Rosh Hashanah. So we're talking, depending on the year, early to mid September, early to late September. I went and actually looked this up. Over the next three years, Rosh Hashanah is anywhere from like September 9th to September 20th. So there's not a specifically determined day and hour and minute, okay? But it's not an, it's not an undetermined one either. And that's why, that's why Jesus could say, watch and look for the signs of yeah. the times. Now, I've never heard this argument. I know some smart aleck with his rapture chart is going to say, well, of course, I heard there this argument and uh, I've, I've, I've rushed you and he wrote this in uh, 79. That's great. Good for you, man. Get your own podcast and maybe 12 people will listen. It's new to me. I'd never, I'd never heard this explanation of a premillennial dispensational view before. And I'm pretty well versed on this. Not an expert, but for a layman, I'm pretty well informed. And in, for the first time in several years, the last few days, it has caused me to rethink my previous skeptic. I wouldn't say rejection because I haven't rejected the view at all. I'm just skeptical of it, of a, of a holistic interpretation or application of it. And I'm just going to leave the conversation there for now and then find out what you guys think. Go ahead. First of all, I think we need to draw a distinction between prophecy and apocalyptic literature it's a good point yeah uh, so prophecy uh would be like um the old testament prophets predicting things about the messiah about jesus christ specific things that ended up coming to pass apocalyptic literature is very very different they're full of uh similes and imagery um, idioms idioms mm-hmm. uh right and some of the only um you mentioned the man of lawlessness that Paul mentions. That's kind of the only concrete type of of uh, reference to future events um, aside from these. But you you look at apocalyptic literature, the last six chapters of Daniel, the entirety of, of Revelation, some of the, the, the more well-known passages. It is full of stuff that we can't just willy-nilly pinned down as this means this uh x me it's it, it's always astounds me i was listening to a really really well-known preacher uh who during the month of april yeah during the month of april and i think march as well was going through the entire book of Ref, uh, revelation you would know who he is i won't uh, i won't drop his name um but it was fascinating to me um that dispensationalists, pre pre millennial dispensationalists, uh, seem to harp on wanting to take everything literally, because the rest of the uh, the, the word of God um, we can take literally. Um, but then they toggle back between on these things that there's, uh, you know, uh, these these animals, you know, that you see in 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 the book of Daniel, these these. Um, these beings coming out of the sea with five wings, you know, five pairs of wings and six eyes, and you know, those types of things. They then they toggle back between. Well, we need to take everything literally, and then, but this actually means something else. Um, those are things that we got to be super careful about. So I that is an interesting 
theory, but the purpose of, I think, apocalyptic literature, which is the vast majority of what we know about the end times or the vast majority about what God has revealed to us about what happened at the, what happens at the end of days is not specific. It is not specific. Its purpose is to reassure us who are followers of the coming again savior that he is coming again, that the wicked will be judged and that the earth will be made new again. So that's the perfect, that's an overall broad comment about the purpose of apocalyptic and how it differs from prophecy. Um, the rub, I think, when you when we bring this up, the rub then becomes, as what, what you said at the beginning of the, the podcast, we are told to watch out for the signs of the times. And so when you hear me say what I just said, it sounds like, well, you know, don't really need to look out because we already know he's coming back, yada, yada, yada. So the rub then becomes, well, what are the signs of the times if everything is... Uh, very non-specific as it uh, as it pertains to the end of days in in the Bible, um, and I don't have a good answer for that. Just to be completely transparent uh, and completely honest, I don't have a good answer for that. There are some things I think that we can glean that we can say. Well, this is probably um, this is probably likely to mean this. Um, and as but as you said, things change so much. Russia, ten fifteen years ago. Couldn't really see them allying with certain forces in the Middle East. Now that seems really likely. In another 10 to 15 years, it could be the exact opposite again. And these things, as you pointed out before, Steve, the entirety of eschatology seems to wax and wane depending on the state of the church at a particular time. So I would just remind everyone, from my view in the cheap seats, the purpose of of eschatology and the purpose of apocalyptic literature, uh, literature which is derived from, or which uh, from which eschatology is de- derived, is to remind us and to give us hope that the Savior is coming again. Not necessarily, um, not necessarily, so that we can. F- we're, we're doing faith. Um, we're, we're doing faith right now not by sight. So we're not, our faith is not built on things that we can definitively see right now, if that makes sense. I feel like that's what eschatology tries to do too often. You mean reverse engineer outcomes to fit my narrative? Yeah. Something like that. Okay. What do you think, Todd? I love this. Uh, I I, I love it uh, from the perspective of uh, the Jewish viewpoint uh, I, I think uh, that strikes one as uh, uh, good and true. Uh, a great book by a Jewish physicist named uh, Charles Schneider, if memory serves. I, I found it absolutely fascinating. Again, a bunch of people out there might be familiar with him and the science involved in this, but uh, he was talking about um, the uh, six uh, days of uh Creation and mm-hmm. you know how oh, well, everything we know and science, science, science. He says, "Well, no, I uh, listen. I believe in science uh, more than anybody, uh, but this all depends on uh, point of view. And now we have the ability to use science as our uh, friend and crunch the numbers and do the math." And he he said, "If you look uh, at uh, 
the creation from our point of view in space-time it's not if you look at it from god's point of view from the very moment of the big bang said it's literally six days the math shows it uh so viewpoint is everything and so as it regards the feasts i mean this is this is just uh another riff on uh why jesus chose uh parables i mean he is it's incarnation. Our our faith is, and, and from a Catholic perspective, we 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 uh, in our liturgy the smells and the bells. You know there there are there are parties. There are an assault on our senses uh, with our faith, a good assault. Uh, and so it, it this totally uh, makes sense to me as something uh, uh, to consider consider and to watch out for. Uh, is that these feasts would be lived out this way? And so when uh, it's another example of the embodiment of when. Well, so is the is the the Old Testament uh, set aside? Is it null and void? And Christ said, No, it's this is the time of fulfillment. Every eye will be uh, dotted, every t uh, will uh, in fact uh, be crossed. Uh, so I. I'm ent- entirely uncomfortable in all of the uh, all of that which is being posited, and I love that not once have uh, you felt compelled through this, or or and you don't seem to be saying that the uh, uh, the the speaker, the author, uh, did either. They don't feel I don't feel locked into a corner by any of the thinking along these lines, which I think is refreshing because it shows uh, uh, sufficient humility uh, that I unfortunately think eschatology it does not submit itself to. That's because here, if this is exactly right, Steve, it still, it still requires all of us to, okay, that's nice. Now we need to put this aside and we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling still. No, nothing changes about that. Which is good, and, yeah. and too many people that get involved in eschatology. Yep. I swear to God, they they like no, really, the whole salvation thing. Um, that, that that's kind of beside the point because yeah. I've I've managed to solve the cosmic riddle of revelation. Let now, me now. let me let me disagree, but in a way that I don't think you'll find disagreeable. If if you don't let it drive you crazy. And I've just seen too many examples where it does, where it becomes an obsession, where instead of it's 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 a little bit like the the stereotype people have of Calvinists. If you don't believe you did anything to earn your salvation, you didn't even choose God, but he foresaw you, foreknew you and just arbitrarily chose you to be um, to, to be saved, to be elected. Why in the world are you so dang arrogant? Right, that's sort of the stereotype people have of Calvinists. I mean, if you absolutely believe in unconditional election, then why are you acting like you're some kind of frozen chosen? Well, you didn't do anything. You know, you won. You won the intergalactic lottery. You ought to be the the, the humblest of all, right? Isn't that sort of the stereotype people have of Calvinists? Okay. Similar with if if you have if this what I saw was a really good argument for premillennial dispensationalism. Not saying it convinced me totally, but it was I it at least made me think. It's a good argument. It can have an impact on your faith if you constructively, if you don't let it drive you nuts. Meaning, if you think, you know what? The clock is ticking here. Like we get down to the two minutes. If you're down by a touchdown at you know the start of the fourth quarter, you feel some pressure, right? Mm-hmm. If you're down by a touchdown at the two-minute warning, what mm-hmm. do you feel on that? Sure. Everything and everything the coach told you suddenly starts 
seeming a lot more realistic to you. You know what I'm saying? You're like, because mm-hmm. you're looking up at the clock, and you're like, like yeah. a couple of minutes left, okay? And game's over. If, you, if you're like, time is short, and it gives you an even more vigorous or renewed commitment to redeem the time as Paul commands, then it can have an impact on your salvation, and a positive one. Well, maybe on your salvation, but on your witness, on your testimony, on your on your integrity. All too often, similar to the stereotype of Calvinists who become extremely arrogant and self-righteous, even though they believe in unconditional election, all too often I have seen zealous and earnest belief in this viewpoint not produce that sort of sense of urgency. So let me let me let me make as big of an impact on this world with my faith as I possibly can. But instead, let me ponder the lint in my navel all the more. Well, you know, I think I've got it down to September 9th or the 20th at Rosh Hashanah. But, uh, you know, will it be Central Time? Uh, will it be Western Time? Uh, you see, you know, uh, yeah. and uh, a lot of times people will just continue once they think they've solved the riddle to just resolve it over and over and over and over yeah, and over and again. I, and what I was trying to get at, at at the end of my comments, we're doing, you know, we... We live by faith and not by sight. I think so many or too many people, when it comes to looking at the sign of the times, they use that as uh, affirmation of their faith, where their faith is resting on what they see in the signs of the time rather than the hope and the promise of what Jesus Christ did on the, on the cross. Their hope is misplaced. That's what I see sometimes when you start to make mm-hmm. too big of a deal mm-hmm. out of eschatology. You misplace your your faith. Yeah, and I think that would be even if even if we have the ability to scientifically show that something associated with biblical end times is coming. You know. Uh, the, the signs that are the, the various, the physical, almost geological signs, th- things like that. The, there's all good. There's all going to be all kinds of people that are not converted based on that and that alone. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's why this doesn't say this feast uh, and this day and this year. It's it says this feast, but maybe this year, maybe ten years from now. Uh, it, it, and and so therefore our our, our faith not is the is the lens through which we see this uh, em, embrace this um, n- nothing about even knowing that day if that feast comes up you, you know be, sinners are still going to sin a lot of uh, believer so-called believers are going to be confronted by Christ and say I hardly knew ye it's not you are not you are not saved by this knowledge. Even if you have, it, you're right. It can help you, like a lot of things in life can help you. But the, the, it, it drives me nuts when this is this is the alpha and the omega of believers. If that is what it has become to you, you've got you've just flat out got it wrong. I, and this was fascinating. I, this is as uh, you you had me quite. I mean, you, you had me engaged at the end. The last third, the the the, the mm-hmm. first two thirds, I was, you know, it was, and not, it, I mean, you did it well, but it was just for same walk, usually not particularly uh, compelling to me because I, I, I think it's been, ma- I think it's been turned into idol worship by way too many people. But by the end, um, that's something that everybody Catholic, Protestant should consider. 
Well, if you want to watch it for yourself, it's on Amazon Prime now. It's called The Coming Convergence is uh, is the name of it. I think you'll find it fascinating. Hey, if you get a chance to click subscribe on either iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you're listening to our podcast today, the more of you that do that, the more of you we are able to reach when people see how this is growing in popularity. They want to be a part of it too. And if you could leave us a positive review, those help us as well. And a lot of you have already done that. So thank you. Keep them coming, please. That's how you can help us help you. Back at it again tomorrow. Feedback Friday. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like it, you.